0: Welcome to a special five-part series of episodes of the Resilient Leadership Podcast. I'm Seth Schultz, Executive Director of the Resilience Shift. If you listened to our podcast before, you would have heard Peter Willis and I reflecting on insights from weekly interviews with 12 senior decision makers from cities and large global corporations navigating their organization's response to the COVID-19 pandemic. We've now hit the midway point of our project, and keeping to the spirit of the project, We've been doing a bit of reflecting ourselves, and we've distilled some emerging insights on leadership and management during a crisis from the last eight weeks. Over the next five episodes of our podcast, Peter and I will discuss these emerging insights under five themes. On this episode, we'll be talking about insights that relate to the theme underlying conditions, the strengths and weaknesses in our social, institutional, or infrastructure systems that have been revealed during this pandemic. Let's jump right in. Well, welcome, Peter. We're uh, we're back together again. So we are Seth. How are you? I'm good. I got uh, I got a good amount of sleep yesterday. Uh, I was running on fumes. It's, it's been a busy time, but it's been a busy time for all of us. Uh, so I and I'm excited about rolling into this week and and hearing a little bit about um, some reflective thoughts about our project. We're at the midway point, so I understand we, we're doing a couple of uh, a series, so to to speak, a mini series of reflections from all the work to date, which is, I think, apropos. And this whole thing is about listening and reflecting uh, and trying to figure out a a way to do that in the midst of the chaos that surrounds us. So it's about right that we try to do that ourselves, isn't it?
1: Yes. Yeah. So we had this idea of uh, of giving our participants in week eight out of 16 uh, what we called a half term, a little half term holiday, which... We needed, in order to go back over the first seven weeks of uh, reflections and insights they'd given to us, and really do a sort of a double distillation. Uh, we we do these weekly ones, as you know, but then we thought, well, hold on, is are there patterns emerging? Are there real sort of um, some issues that are really coming through strongly over time that are worth picking out? And it's been a fascinating process. So what we've come up with is five sequential headings, if you like. Uh, sequential in relation to big crisis like the um, coronavirus Mm -hmm. and each one of these we've got some interesting insights under obviously and uh, we're going to appear on the website as text but then you and I are going to talk about each of them in a separate little podcast conversation so we'll go through them one two three four five and the first one is is about the underlying and pre-existing conditions before the crisis arrives, which we've discovered from our conversations with the participants are absolutely crucial. Then we talk about the actual early arrival of how do you lead in those early weeks, uh, early moments even. Then we sort of take a, a move sideways and, and go to the personal and the, the sort of the pure leadership practice insights that we've garnered. And then we go back into the operational managing of a crisis. And as it gets much more complex, as you, as you know, it's kind of locking down was simple. Coming out of it is hugely complex. So insights around what what we call the turbulence of the breaking wave um, going into it was the the wave starts to break. And now we're in number four is the turbulence of the breaking wave. And then finally, we're starting to get some very interesting thinking about how do we Come out of this in a way that we recover better. So we call that one recovering better.
0: Sounds exciting. I'm liking the mm. lineup, um, and it's going to be fascinating to kind of go through this conversation with you and and hear where it's all landed. And just for the listeners' benefit, you know, I haven't been party to the distillation and and insights process that you and the team have been running. So you know, I'm um this is I'm excited to to be on this listening journey just with everybody else uh, talking to you about what we hear from this. And it's also interesting too. I was curious you know you, you and i were just talking off camera before we we got we got going here today and and uh made the point that we've actually never met in person we've been doing all of this oh. all of this virtually um but yet i feel like i i know you incredibly well now and i'm i was it must be the same for some of the participants since you've been engaging with all over the world you haven't met i think well maybe one you you might have known previously yes one um but the uh, the others you don't so i was really curious how that relationship that, that is evolving in this underlying trust factor and engagement is also building or not building. I, I don't know. But um, yeah, it's exciting stuff. And I'm I'm super happy to be hearing all of this for the first time today myself.
1: Well, they, I have to tell you that um, when I sent them off on their half term break, it gave me a week with no interviews and a lot of reviewing and right. writing and analyzing and so on. But I found myself thinking, how am I going to be at the end of week 16, when the, when we all say goodbye, and I thought, I'm going to be heartbroken because these, these are my friends now. I mean, that's, you know, without getting too sentimental, that, but we've been through, we've been talking to each other through a crisis and so, uh, there have been moments when it's been really quite pointed. poignant. Can, yeah. Yeah. I suppose it's to be expected, but it's, um, I felt it quite uh, vividly.
0: Well, I think it's a perfect way to kind of jump into what I believe you said was the the first kind of category that you wanted to go through today was his underlying conditions and and again yes. just to your point about the connections, the relationships, this underlying condition that we all have, which is the need to be with each other and experiencing other human interaction, which has been really difficult for COVID and and everybody having to work remotely and and the huge crave and desire and need for. Humans to be in touch with each other, so it uh, couldn't be a better place for us to kind of jump into all of this. So, so tell me, what what uh, what have, what have we learned so far?
1: Okay, so we we touched on this in the the round five podcast that we do on a weekly basis, um, and I wanted to expand on it a little bit. This idea that uh, just as our bodies are how how our bodies are, what condition they're in, and our minds as well, sort of psycho emotional somatic um, state that we're in, when a a shock hits us, whether it's a virus or another kind of illness, will have a huge impact on how we come through it uh, or whether we come through it. And similarly, if you're a city or a corporation, or you're managing a city or a corporation, guess what? If when a pandemic comes over the horizon towards you, there's very little you can do to alter the pre-existing state of your organization or city, you're going to have to cope with the fact that there were things you didn't get around to fixing before this arrived, and they're going to matter. And similarly, if you have invested in social structures, infrastructures beforehand, and that's been good work, you will enjoy the benefit of moving smoothly through aspects of this crisis, where others, you can see to left and right of you, are really struggling. Uh, let me take one or two examples. The, the city of Milan, where the chief resilience officer, Piero, is talking to us on a weekly basis, they locked down, as we know, very firmly. But they, what I didn't realize until he told me recently was that the, they had some very precise rules preventing certain people from locking down with certain other people and they might be their gay partners, they might be not strictly family, but close friends who they've been living with for a while. But because the, the culture, the, the society, has got certain embedded restrictive rules and cultures around who's, who counts as family, this all-important idea of family, it's caused real hardship and suffering for people in a way that in a modern city like Milan, it's become a real discussion about, hold on, we can never be in this position again where we're obliged to be separate from people that we care about simply because of some archaic view of who is family and who's not. Um, I mean, this is an old, old story of um, new mores, new ethos emerging with new generations and the older generations who usually run the rules saying, oh, no, 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 we can't have that much change that fast. So I thought it was an interesting little insight there. But then on the on the more positive side, there is this wonderful stream of conversations I've had with Anne Rosenberg of SAP, who is Danish and was lured back from her home in New York by the Danish government at the beginning of the crisis saying, I think you'll be safer with us. Why didn't you come home? And she did. And they are now coming out of the crisis, having had very few deaths, incredibly well managed, healthcare for all. Long established and so on. So there is a society, and, and it's so clear talking with her that this is a society that that has a very sort of um, well-oiled, grown-up way of dealing with its citizens, and protection of its citizens is front and center. And look, there's a there's a hard difference between a Denmark and UK, a USA. Uh, one could go on, where there's a sort of a where where government is politicized and the job of protecting citizens is a little bit further down the, the ranking of what really matters to the political leadership. Mm.
0: Yeah. Or even in, or in worst cases, pitted against each other to
1: see who can compete
0: about protecting their citizens better. Exactly. Just as terrible. Yeah.
1: One often gets the impression that politicians think that people are stupid, but then for a lot of the time, people actually do behave as though they are stupid in the sense that they will go along with and allow Crazy sort of um, half baked narratives to, to run their political discourse. But then, when you throw in an existential threat like pandemic, my impression is that huge numbers of those people wake up and they say, Now, hold on, I need to be helped to keep me and my family safe. So, what are you going to give me? That's when uh, it matters how your politics, how your, the state of your government institutions have been nurtured in the preceding years. And and this is a huge lesson to come out of this crisis. And I think some countries, some communities, some cities are going to be ready to roll up their sleeves and say, we must never be in that position of weakness on this or that aspect again. And there'll be a lot of public support for that. And there will be others where they will find that just too difficult to swallow because it'll mean going, admitting failure, admitting that we undermined public safety by our behavior and so on.
0: Yes. And again, of course, the analogy of the underlying conditions completely holds true again for federal governments, national governments, and what they were or weren't ready for. But it it is striking to hear this conversation with you and the participants because it is further eroding around us um, in terms of not Mm. just what national governments were and weren't ready for, but their retraction from collaboration. And the further undermining of intergovernmental entities, there's very few of them that exist to provide that global commons. The the US uh, just uh, has announced that we are ceasing the support and funding of the World Health Organization, which is the most critical organization in the world right now trying to provide some cohesive approaches for how to do this. And, And for the most part, even the example of Denmark, astounding what they're doing to try to pull back and put citizens in the the forefront lens of protection, but they're doing that them for themselves, not necessarily for others. And you could even argue that they're trying to use this moment to re-engage their citizen base around the world and bring them back by saying, hey, we're going to do this better than than the other folks. And it's exactly the opposite of this bottom-up collaboration and you know, global volunteerism is I think the term you used in a previous conversation about what is solving this problem global pandemic right now. And it's people stepping up to the bat and doing things that aren't good for them, but are better for the broader environment. And I just don't see national governments behaving like that.
1: I don't know that it's fair to criticize national governments for thinking nationally in response to a a viral epidemic, because um, you have to, since, since epidemiology tells us you've got to, create barriers to the spread of this thing. So the natural barrier that all governments are gonna reach for is a boundary, is a geographic boundary. And we've got centuries and centuries of practice at patrolling boundaries. So to me, that's, that's always felt like a logical thing to do, is you think for your manageable community, which is if you're a national government, it's your nation. But, but you, you, you and I know that the old sort of sustainability adage of um, think globally, act locally. With an epidemic coming, you have to act locally. You can't say, "Okay, guys, let's all tackle this with one voice," because I don't think you can. I don't think that works when you've got days to get ready for an epidemic. I would agree with you, but the thinking, like we're a global, but allowing each other to act appropriately, I agree. the The, the global bit's been missing, and that's painful.
0: I agree, but it goes back to the underlying conditions again, and and the idea that, you know, as you said, we've got centuries of practice of national governments doing what national governments do, which would protect their interests and in their borders. But that's, you know, that's going back to, to, again, this concept of muscle memory. You do what you know and what you're yeah. set up to do. And increasingly, whether it's a pandemic, whether it's now a secondary fallout issue, which is a global financial crisis and or, you know, shortages in supply chains or food, increasingly... Because of the interconnected nature of our society underpinned by infrastructure, allowing goods and services to move more freely than they have at any other point in the world, we're more interdependent on each other than ever before. So I guess the point I'm trying to make is that that muscle memory of protecting our borders, which national governments are set up to do and are supposed to do, is inherently at conflict with how we need to solve some of these broader problems. It's juxtaposition. Yeah,
1: that's nice. I like that. Yeah, yeah. And I know I totally agree that there's a we ought to be able to hold both in our minds at the same time, that there are certain things that have to be done locally, which is epidemiological control. But there are other things which uh, we have to solve globally. Um, and that actually brings me to another sort of subheading in this underlying conditions heading that we have, which is around supply chains. Mm. Um, because you, you rightly say that global supply chains is, is the sort of the, the lifeblood of the global economy and society. But um, they have been, as we all know, they've been decimated by the pandemic or rather the response to the pandemic. A virus can't attack a supply chain, but we, in our response to it, can decide to cut off supply chains. And very interesting conversation with Hani Pham on this point, where he says he's been doing a lot of thinking about supply chains. He's a businessman who's actually setting up a, a very innovative business right now, and His observation is that we are going to have to rethink and sort of stratify our supply chains into those which are kind of existentially crucial to our societies. And those must be governments must step in and make sure this supply chain, obviously for pandemics, it's it's in terms of PPE, vaccination equipment, ventilators, those kind of things. We must never be caught competing with each other for those and relying on a private sector exercise to go out and find these things. So those you must really invest in as a government working with private sector. But then your regular private sector supply chains, they they don't have to have the same degree of government involvement. But he and several other private sector interviewees come back to this point that they cannot see how the supply chains that they're used to are going to remain as they were. And part of it is the this uh, we are never going to go back to, they think we're never going to go back to this just-in-time, super-efficient model of supply chains, because that is incredibly vulnerable to any shock. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah. And no, and this is what's so fascinating, because you're starting to use words that are very near and dear to what we do at Resilient Shift, right? Stresses, shocks, vulnerable. And I think this is one of the issues we've had for a long time, is that the proliferation of current supply chains and the the profit-making machines that we have all been party to and helped create have thrived on that efficiency, have thrived on now we can get this product or create this service in the cheapest, most efficient way possible, and that'll drive up profits. But that has exacerbated, that has been done at the cost of increasing vulnerability and increasing hyperconnectivity. connectivity Now, the point that we've been rewarding that and there's been lots of people, including ourselves at Resilient Shift, who have been warning that this is a problem and that this is making us all vulnerable and that the vulnerabilities are so interconnected that when one piece of that puzzle, because as you said, a virus doesn't attack a supply chain. It's the decisions associated with addressing the virus that then upends the supply chains and how quickly you can have a domino effect. And it is really fascinating, Peter, to, to try to think about. Are the learning, are we going to go right back to, to where we were again and trying to drive up costs? Or is the existential threat that this has posed to companies and the way of doing business going to be so in, inherently seared into the memory of corporations that they will change and alter this? This is a huge question that's looming in all of this. While people and companies are still fighting for their existence, you know, nobody knows what it's gonna look like, but this this idea of you know, how, how have we moved and progressed too far into one spectrum compared to where we were? The analogy on that is, is how a modern society got set up, which is around city states, right? Cities and as cities got bigger, they were totally dependent on their surrounding peri rural areas that could supply them with the goods and the services and the food they needed. And if a city got bigger than, the, than what the they surrounding area could provide them, they, they, they couldn't exist. And now we've gone the exact opposite, where most of the products, goods, and services that you consume are coming from other parts of the planet. Uh, and this whole idea about farm-to-table, how do we reconnect with our surrounding interlands, how do we support local business and communities uh, how Does that cost more? Does that inhibit our choices of consumers? But how much more resiliency does that provide to local economies and business? Mm. How can they weather these shocks and stresses?
1: You know, I think of Piero in Milan and our conversation where he's, he talks about the the mood that's coming at the city council from the citizens is, please don't ask us to go too far to get our stuff, whether uh-huh. it's food or even to get sort of municipal Documentation and so on. Please, can we have it nice and local? Because we started to feel so safe, so local. And he's saying that he thinks this is going to play out into people wanting to buy things from places that are nearby because they feel more secure and so on. Of course, that's you know that that'll be one thread amongst many threads coming out of this. But it also reminds me of what's happened here in Cape Town. What happened in the drought a couple of years ago, where everybody who could afford to buy a water rainwater harvesting tank. Went and bought one because that gave you a little more control. You weren't completely at the mercy of these huge dams, 50 kilometers outside the city. You could actually, if there was any rain, I'm going to catch it in my water tank and then it's my water. I feel a little safer. And that's a very natural human response to a sudden shot of insecurity. And we've had a big shot of insecurity with COVID. So I think we can expect some residual behavior like that.
0: Yeah. Fascinating. And, and what about at the corporate side? Do you hear anything from the, from the businesses, yes. Peter, about how companies, because again, companies are structured to provide profit and short-term gains versus long term security is always some a challenge that companies deal with. But a lot of that is kind of ingrained and institutionalized in their practice. Are you hearing any of the leaders in the business side that we're talking to that have butt up against those kind of internal practices and policies that they're trying to th- help rethink through some of these impacts? I'm going to take
1: your question back to the, the heading that we're discussing right now, which is the underlying condition, the pre-existing conditions. And to me, one of the most interesting bits of evidence we got from our various corporate interviewees was that they all looked back on IT investments that their companies had made in the previous five years. And they said, Thank goodness the decisions in at board level went in favor of investment. They were incredibly hard decisions to make because it was a lot of money we had to spend and so on. But look at the difference it's made to us when suddenly we were all working from home, our clients needed to get hold of us anywhere at any time and so on. And, and in the same vein, investments in data, big data, data analytics and stuff. And that was the city of Cape Town did that, but also the, some of the corporates. Those two for me were trends that you had to just be a little bit up to date to invest in IT and big data. That's nothing radical and revolutionary there, but it's nice to see that those who did it are feeling the reward of it, because hopefully that will lock into their thinking, building security, building resilient infrastructure for your organization to function in difficult circumstances
0: is a big tick. Yeah, it requires that preventative upfront. Yeah. And sometimes
1: yeah. we'll invest and it may not, we may not be able to show a return, but better safe than sorry. Uh, but I think the supply chains, they weren't going in that direction. Supply chains were always going in the direction of super efficient, super fast. And I think that may have to change. So there we are. We've covered, I think, the, the prior to the arrival. And in the next section, we'll talk about when the virus arrives.
0: Fantastic. Well, thanks again, Peter. Looking forward to our next chat. Me too. Thank you for listening to Peter and I as we discussed some of the emerging insights from the Resilient Leadership Project thus far. If you want to hear more insights and reflections from our midterm review, please listen to the other four episodes that are part of our special five-part series. You can find these episodes and a lot more around emerging insights on our website. Link in the episode notes below. On behalf of the Resilience Shift, this is Seth Schultz. See you soon.